0: Talking history. This is news talk.
1: We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender.
2: And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of
1: the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind.
2: Augusto, Argus, Akoya.
0: Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the life and death of Theobald Wolftone on this, the 225th anniversary of the 1798 Rebellion, and we'll be debating his remarkable legacy. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we found out about the ending of the 100 Years' War and the role of Joan of Arc. We investigated the skullduggery and corruption in the Irish House of Commons in the 17th century and explored the history of the Royal College of Surgeons. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows just go to the news talk app powered by go loud our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts This year marks the 225th anniversary of the 1798 Rebellion and the capture, trial and death of Theobald Wolfe Tone. Considered the father of modern Irish republicanism, Tone enlisted the support of France in his attempt to create an independent Irish state, only for it to end in failure in 1798. However, through his writings and his actions, he inspired later generations of revolutionaries, including Patrick Pearce. And so in tonight's show, we want to reassess his life and remarkable legacy. And to help me do that, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Dr. Katrina Kennedy is a reader in the Department of History at the University of York an expert on the Revolutionary Napoleonic Wars her new book Women, Politics and the Irish Public Sphere in the Age of Revolutions will be published next year Professor Thomas Bartlett is Emeritus Professor of Irish History at the University of Aberdeen among his many publications he's the editor of The Life of Tone as well as a biography of the United Irish Leader Dr. Sylvie Kleinman is a Visiting Research Fellow in the Department of History Trinity College Dublin and is an expert on Tone's mission to France his military career and his travels in Europe. Last but by no means least, William Atkins is co chairman of the Wolf Tone 225 commemoration and is a descendant of Wolf Tone. Well, you're all very welcome. And Tom, I might begin with you and I might begin with a question of, you know, where Tone stands in this year, the 225th anniversary of the 1798 rebellion and the 225th anniversary of his
3: death. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I have to admit, I was. Relatively unaware that it was 225 years since Tone died, um, Bill Atkins had a, had a role in this in in, in so far as he was as a relative or a descendant of Tone, he was keen to sort of bring Tone to the forefront of a historical discussion. So th- that I think has been very useful in bringing Tone to to the attention of a wider public and to debate what exactly his achievements were if any, I suppose. The thing that strikes me, strikes me now and struck me 25 years ago when I, when I compiled uh, Tone's writings is that he was born in 1763 and he died in 1798, which means that he was, from first to last, an 18th century person. And it's, it's important that the context in which he lived and died is, is brought to the forefront. 1763 was the date when the Seven Years War ended, it meant that Britain controlled most of India, Canada, large numbers of the West Indies, present day Burma and various other places as well. It was the greatest empire that the world had ever seen. For someone like Tone, born into that period, 1763 on, this meant that there were, seemed to be huge opportunities for acquisition, for imperial gain, for uh, territorial expansion for making a living, prospering. And one of the things that strikes me looking back at Tone's life was just how much imperial adventure um, played in his formative years. Um, he In the 1780s, he pr- made several proposals for British attacks on Spanish colonies in South America he made proposals to liberate the, the slaves in the spanish colonies now these all came none of these came to anything but they reflect the way that the world seemed to have been turned upside down by the smashing british victories over in the seven years war tone was someone who from first to last and we have to remember that even as he was about to embark in 1796 for an invasion of ireland with a french fleet he still cast his mind back to his his program for imperial adventures and literally a few months before he died he still he was talking about maybe enlisting in the east india company and uh, or perhaps even joining a french expeditionary force which would go to india so far away countries filled his filled his imagination we also have to remember that the late 18th century was a period when it was an age of discovery with captain cook in the south seas the so-called discovery of Australia, um, all of this fired his imagination and set the pulse racing. And it's in, within that context that the events in France and the prospects, the implications of those events for Ireland have to be seen. And Sylvie, it's interesting that in this two hundred and twenty-fifth
0: anniversary, there really wasn't very much attention given. Now we'll talk to Bill about it. Bill organized this wonderful conference that took place in Belfast and Dublin. But apart from that, the only real attention given to Tone was the the debate, the controversy over whether he was murdered by the British. And Paddy Cullivan had his had his play about the murder of Wolf Tone, and there was a, a debate in the letters page of the Irish Times and on various media outlets. But it was centering on that issue rather than on what did 1798 represent or what was Tone's legacy. It was purely just the circumstances of his death.
2: Well, there are two or three activities that were going on. And in fairness, people have been doing reenactment, which has been snowballing uh, since 2018. And I'm far more aware of 1798 reenactment. Already have this on the horizon. And you had at local level events building up through the spring. Personally, I think there was too much. I was co-curator of a small exhibition in Paris at the Irish Cultural Centre, which opened on the, uh, just so happened, the afternoon of the quarterfinal, the rugby match in October. Tom will remember in 1998, you know, sporting events overlapping uh, with major historical commemorations. But I think there was understandably, for the West in Mayo, I was out in Ballinat, there was a lot of emphasis on the French invasion and on the military aspects. And what I regret, and I've done a little bit of military reenactment, is I always used to say, well, you know, can I read out a pamphlet? Can, we, can I stand on a soapbox, you know, and read out Tom Paine's Rights of Man? So Bill Atkins had been planning the event around Tone For nearly three years, and he wanted much more of a broader focus. We also need to remember that we looked at the legacy of the United Irishmen. We looked at Tone's interaction with the United Irishmen, at their political vision. So our event really added an awful lot to it. The final thing is, is that many of us felt that the decade of centenaries had ahistorically overlooked what had so inspired The 1916 Revolutionary Generation, which was the revolutionary act of 1798, but also what their vision had been. And amongst that tone was obviously the most significant figure.
0: Tom, that is a very interesting point. The whole attention given to the decade of centenaries, which is now drawn to an end, mm. that 1912 to 1923 period, it did mean that any events from before 1900 kind of were neglected and ignored. And there probably wasn't that context to uh, what, what happened in 1916 and afterwards.
3: Well, that, I think that's absolutely right we must remember that if you if you're looking for the roots of 1916 you you need to go back to the 1790s and the more immediate roots of 1916 is the commemoration in 1898 of 1798 if you look at the membership of, of the various committees which were set up to commemorate um 1798 in 1898 it's like a who's who of who will be out and about in 1916 1919 1920 it was a f- it, it galvanized and radicalized, and gave huge momentum to the, the revolutionary impulse, to the desire for separation and for republicanism. Um, so, given that it, 1916, the commemoration did tend to begin sort of on the 24th of April 1916, and little there was very little done about, spoken about what what went before, whether it was the Young Irelanders or John Mitchell or the Fenians or whatever. It gave it a sort of a s something that came out of the blue, whereas in fact there was a long train and then seventeen ninety eight rebellion and particularly Theobald Wolf Tone had cast a long shadow through the nineteenth century, which I think was not there. In the decade of commemoration, and of course, tone
0: inspires Davis and the young Irelanders and oh. it inspires the Fenians. So it really is the 1790s period is the is the decade that kick-starts it. Bill, it's a pleasure having you on the show, and it was a wonderful series of events you organised in Belfast and Dublin. And if and if, if any of our listeners want to to watch back the proceedings, they just need to go to YouTube and look up Wolf Tone Two Two Five, and you can get you know the full uh, the full proceedings in. Belfast and Dublin. Why was it important for you to have this commemoration this year?
1: Well, I've just completed reading the three volume set that, um, that everybody is familiar with. And having accomplished that, um, I was filled with all this information about a second cousin, seven generations removed, that I didn't know previously. And uh, I've first focused internally in my family, and uh, I found some like-minded relatives who were interested in pursuing this, as Sylvie said. My uncle, 84-year-old uncle and I, uh, William Tone, came over in 2021, which kind of kicked off the this whole enterprise, but I think mostly it's as I read those words that I kept hearing them um, as... Pertinent to many situations that we face into today 's political climate, and it makes you wonder how a guy two hundred and twenty five years ago could have created the this opus, this you know extensive uh, uh, volumes of literary work, and having had it meticulously uh, edited and published and footnoted that it was there for the taking and um, I believe that it was in one of our little committee meetings that somebody said, well, you know, the 19th of November is the 225th anniversary, and that's really all we needed um, to figure out what we wanted to do uh, to, you know, bring uh, Tone's Tone's name to uh, the modern discussion.
0: And Bill, what is it about Tone's writings that you think resonated so powerfully in the in the ni- in the the 18th century and then in the 19th and 20th centuries and indeed into our present day? Is it, you know, as Tom has written about, the fact that they're written in a style that's so immediate that uh, we can relate to him, his struggles. And because the writing style is so elegant and powerful, it persuades us more than some of the dry, dusty writing of the 1790s.
1: Right, I mean, I think we we work really hard to contextualize anything that we you know kind of say about history, about people in history, and in this case, I think it's totally appropriate because we 've got a young man who is uh, you know by the time we 're aware of him through other people 's writings, you know he 's in his adolescence um, pretty much, I think, and you know we probably had some family stories. <sighs> from Kildare at his grandfather's farm, where at some time, you know, there were some reflections on, you know, what he was doing, what he did, but it really wasn't until he got to Trinity and onto Temple, the Middle Temple, that we get a, a full kind of flushed out view of this young man, and in considering his age, and, um, you know, I mean, just comparing to what I accomplished at age 21, um, much less 36, um, you would think that this is a... a extremely possessed person who doesn't quite know what he's being <laughs> possessed by, and I think Tom's comment about the imperialism is, is very impro- appropriate, um, but I think you have to take it in the context of adolescent youth as well, and uh, certainly the Spanish War pamphlet, his relationship with um, with Russell and a couple of bottles of claret. Um, they're, it could be viewed, I think, as him wanting to put the Union Jack on and go fight for Britain. But I think it could have been anybody, Colors.
0: Katrina, it is fascinating to explore those contradictions in Tone's uh, in tones, beliefs, especially in those earlier years up to about 1790. The, the fact that he did want to, to go off and fight in the British Army in the American War of Independence, the fact that he had that scheme for setting up a, a British base on Hawaii, that... Uh, you know, it's, he's been described as a frustrated imperialist in this. You know, it could be put down to his his his, his youthful adventurism, but uh, it's very different from the later Tone that we're familiar with.
4: Yes, absolutely. I think that's something that um, has really preoccupied historians looking at um, Tone. So I suppose um, in the 1980s, in a kind of classic uh, revisionist biography of Tone, uh, Tom Dunn suggested um, in a really interesting reading, that he was fundamentally a colonial outsider. So this idea that he was someone who, because who wanted initially to uh, forge his way within the framework of the British Empire and to exercise his um, ambitions within that um, framework, but because he was blocked or frustrated in doing so, that he then turned, then became an Irish. Republican separatists. And I think there's still some value in that that interpretation. I mean, we can see various moments in Tone's life if his father had allowed him to join the British Army or if that scheme for colonising the Sandwich Islands had been accepted or if he had managed, you know, at one point he's um, in uh, uh, discussions with the Irish parliamentary Whigs. Um, about the possibility of getting a seat in Parliament, and that would have maybe set him on a different path, a, a less kind of radical um, path that he eventually uh, embarks on. Um, but as you know, Tom was saying, we shouldn't necessarily see it as a, a, a paradox or a contradiction as such, because in some ways it's those that spirit of military adventure that is driving him in um, his early years that uh, also, you know, uh, uh, is sort of driving him onwards when he eventually um, is negotiating this um, military alliance with uh, France and embarking on that um, expedition to Ireland. So, you know, there is a, a, some consistency running through his career.
0: And Sylvia, as the world was changing, so too did Tone.
2: You know, listening to Katrina and what Tom had said before, there has been a tendency, because of Tone's adulated stature as some sort of Promethean figure and deliverer, and the cult which which evolved, which is very much needs to be understood from a broad international nineteenth-century nationalist romantic um, construct. You find very similar hero 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 stories and monomyths constructed. Ireland is completely in an international mode. But all this deconstruction of tone, if you look at the careers of Napoleon and the writings of Voltaire and Rousseau, I'm sure you're also going to find inconsistencies. I think often this deconstruction and wanting, you know, was his political language uh, progressive or did he meander? It's very much a reaction to all the fuss about tone. And... Tom made a very crucial point at the beginning. He was an adventurer. And I think all the plans, the South Sea Islands and all this, the British Army was a means by which within an institution that was recognizable to him, he could live out this adventure instead of just packing his bags and jumping on a boat and ending up, you know, on his own in South America. Um, so I think and now at the moment this year, there's a big debate about Ireland and empire that's growing as the debate on the monarchy in Britain uh, is beginning to uh, snowball. Katrina would be aware of this. Um, and I think wanting to absolute seek a clear, consistent path is a bit unfair The final thing is we know so much about Tone because of his diary and his autobiography, but especially his diary, which is frenetic and mercurial and spontaneous. So, you know, sentences and quotes have been picked out. But I think this tendency to want to model Tone into, you know, a consistent thinker like a Greek statue, uh, you know, I think it's a bit unfair to a very lively human being.
0: Well, Sylvie mentions Ireland and Empire and we do, of course, have our own podcast on Ireland and Empire with Jane Olmar, Michal Shakru, and others from a few weeks ago. And of course, our show on Napoleon with Sylvie and uh, Hugh Goff and Joe Clark and others as well. So uh, we've been very much keeping up with those debates. So well, we're going to take a quick break now. But when we come back, we'll be talking about Tone's argument on behalf of the Catholics of Ireland and the road that led him to Bantry Bay and 1798. So stay with us here. On News Talk. Welcome back. We're talking history, and tonight we're debating the life, legacy, and death of Theobald Wolftone. I'm delighted to be joined by my panel of experts, Dr. Katrina Kennedy of the University of York, Professor Thomas Bartlett, Emeritus Professor of Irish History at the University of Aberdeen, Doctor Sylvie Kleinman of Trinity College Dublin, and Bill Atkins, co-chairman of the Wolf Tone two hundred and twenty-five commemoration. Tom, talk to us about the argument on behalf of the Catholics of Ireland, because this pamphlet published in seventeen ninety-one becomes the best selling Irish pamphlet I think pretty much of all time, and it's written in such a persuasive way, in such a stylish way that it's it pretty much sets the, the it's well see to, to bar the button like it sets the tone for the 1790s. It sets the stage for what happens in terms of uh,
3: convincing Presbyterians that Catholics can be trusted. Well, that that this was the big problem for those who wanted parliamentary reform in Ireland. The, the big difficulty was that Catholics were the large majority, the vast majority, perhaps 75-80% of the population. So any attempt to bring the Catholics into the, into the parliamentary system within the Constitution, in the eyes of many Protestants, most Protestants and Presbyterians, this would inevitably mean to Catholic dominance and a Catholic ascendancy which would replace the, their political power. So that led to impasse. The reform couldn't go forward if it was only confined, parliamentary reform, if it was only confined to Protestants because it would lack impact. If you include Catholics, Protestants would back away from it. Tone's pamphlet seeks to draw the lessons from the French Revolution for an Irish audience. And what he says in effect is, look at France. France was the most Catholic country in the world. France was the sword arm of the Pope of the Vatican. And yet French people despite their Catholicism, were able to promulgate the rights of man, were able to dethrone the uh, the king, they were able to separate church from state. If the most Catholic country in the world with the most Catholic Catholics could achieve all these wonderful things, then perhaps a fresh look might be taken of Irish Catholics. If French Catholics could achieve these wondrous things, perhaps Irish Catholics were not entirely lost to liberty. Perhaps they could, in fact, um, embrace liberty and not behave always as sectarians, but as citizens um, alongside their Protestant colleagues and co-citizens, and so on. This pamphlet is was deftly written, really cleverly put together, and it has, as you've said, an enormous impact. It was even captured by Dublin Castle, or presumably bought by Dublin Castle, and sent to London say, look at this, this is dangerous material, what is going on here? Because the last thing the British government wanted was a union of Catholic, Protestant and dissenter demanding parliamentary reform, which, who who knows what, would make the Irish Parliament almost impossible to control, and even at that time it was difficult enough to control, but if there was an influx of new people, wider representation, smaller constituencies and so on, then... Every, who, who knows what would happen? This was a, a great fear of British politicians. So Tone's pamphlet is the, shows the way out of the impasse that had existed in the 1770s and 1780s. If you want reform, we've got to bring the Catholics on board. Look at France. Catholics are not lost to liberty. If the French Catholics can do it, Irish Catholics can be brought on board as well. And, Katrina, you definitely see
0: Tone becoming more radical in this period. The United Irishmen are founded and he gives it its name and he's a crucial figure in the founding of the United Irishmen and an organisation which itself goes through different transformations in the 1790s. But it is a, a road, a radical road, which, which does result in Tone having to leave Ireland and, and it leads him on that road to revolution.
4: Yes, yeah, so, I mean, the key moments, I suppose, after the publication of the argument on behalf of the um, uh, the Roman Catholics of Ireland um, are uh, Tone's appointment as secretary to the Catholic Committee, um, uh, which itself is becoming increasingly radical. So there's a shift in how um, Irish Catholics are presenting their case. They've gone from being much more deferential, petitioning the king Um, You know, these constant expressions of loyalty to a more aggressive um, approach to their own emancipation, and that's signalled by the appointment of Tone. And then he he goes to Belfast, and that also puts him in contact with um, probably the group that is really at the vanguard of radical Republican politics um, on the island of Ireland, uh, the Belfast Presbyterians, um, uh, and it's in Belfast that the United Irishmen are, are first founded. But of course, Tone still has some work to do in terms of persuading um, Belfast Presbyterians about um, the necessity of full, immediate Catholic emancipation. Tom talked there about you know, the pretty entrenched prejudices even amongst the most progressive members of that community, um, uh, uh, regarding Catholics. Are they capable of lib- liberty? You know, this is a group that they've long seen as kind of inherently servile um, and Tone and his good friend Thomas Russell are there putting in the hard yards, really debating with the, um, these Belfast radicals, you know, persuading them that they have to, they cannot have a reform programme that does not fully include uh, Catholics, and he does that with some success. But it's it, those initial few years, 1792, um, is when it's really a, um, about the politics of positioning. They're, um, you know, writing a lot, tones, you know, producing um, uh, other works on behalf of the Catholic Committee. But in 1793, when uh, war is declared against Revolutionary France, war breaks out between Britain Ireland, and. Uh, the French Republic that really shifts the context you know what was acceptable, the kind of um, political pamphlets, pl- forms of political expression, and assembly that um, would have been considered acceptable um, before the outbreak of war um, become much more dangerous in that wartime context, and of course the the united Irishmen themselves then are uh, uh, become a prescribed um, uh, Organisation. So at that point, they're really uh, being pushed underground, and of course, uh, Tone himself falls under the suspicion um, of uh, government, and uh, is, um, uh, you know, is able to do a kind of deal uh, where he agrees to leave um, for the United States, um, as the situation in Ireland is becoming more repressive and really heating up. So he. Um, uh, bids farewell to his close friends in um, Belfast. You know, whilst also promising or committing themselves that they will continue in their endeavours to liberate Ireland.
0: And after a detour in the United States, he ends up uh, in France. And Sylvie, it's fascinating to look at his his. The relationships he developed in France, the, the networks he built, the way he was able to convince the, the French that Ireland should be uh, supported in this revolutionary struggle and that this was a way of defeating uh, Britain. And you see that uh, culminating, first of all, in, a, in an invasion attempt uh, towards Bantry Bay in 1796.
2: One thing that stands out is that Tone kept an extremely detailed diary Uh, as a record of events, but also it's kind of like a personal debrief. And when editions of his complete works, uh, I mean, Tom Bartlett has re-edited the whole thing for 1998. There are a huge amount of political pamphlets and writings. But in the 19th century and in the 1930s, there were very abridged editions that completely discarded all the political writings, even the argument on behalf of Catholics. It's quite extraordinary. And they only edited and published the autobiography written in France, which is relatively brief, and the section of the diary beginning when he lands in France in February 96. So you have a running narrative, a very frenetic one written to the moment, and you also have adventure. And as Declan Kyberd wrote, we know how the story ends. We know that it ends with the French deciding to uh, commit men and means and launching initially the Bantry Bay invasion. So when I started my uh, PhD research, uh, uh, you know, Marianne Elliott had written already wonderful books. There had been books written, and Christopher Woods was completing. I helped him on the final volume, volume three of Tone's writings, which Bill alluded to. And everyone was saying, look, Sylvie, when you're in the archives in France, if you find anything new, let us know. Because we always wanted confirmation. And Tone, and it must be said, many other completely obscure Irishmen, a few that he mentions, so that's why they're no longer so obscure, they left a considerable footprint. Tone arrives... Not entirely unconnected. He has a letter in cipher in code for the American ambassador in Paris. But he has to lie low because there are spies, English posing as Americans. From a military point of view, the French are open now to an amphibian operation, to something beyond the borders of France. beyond the continent because they have pacified the Vendee. So they can commit, and Osh emerges as a leader ready to take on this Irish project. Tone a little bit misrepresents Ireland. We need to remember that he's been out of the country for a few months, and he's not getting, you know, WhatsApps and blogs, uh, fresh information but he does misrepresent the readiness to rise of ireland he does state that because the vast rank and file of the new catholic of the new irish militia are catholic that they are going to side with the french if a substantial force of disciplined and experienced and well-armed french troops arrive to prevent a bloodbath in Ireland and help lead an ordered revolution. But in any event, it happens. The French take the decision by June. So Tone arrives in February and they take the decision by June to begin planning for the Bantry Bay invasion, which is delayed because you don't just launch an amphibian operation and press a button in 1796 the way you would do today. In parallel to all the dry administrative, naval archives, military archives, diplomatic archives, you have Tone's diary. So many people were not interested in archival, you know, in footnotes and what's in the scholarly edition. They had Tone's version of it as it's happening. So all of this, you can understand, creates an extraordinary reader experience. And yet it's grounded in history because the French do arrive off the coast of Ireland, December 96. And that's going to provoke in Ireland a, a reaction and the beginning of disarmament and a total crumbling, which will lead to the rising in May 98 without the French.
0: And Sylvia, it is extraordinary, as you say, that we have Tone's day-by-day journal for this entire period. And it's an incredible psychological insight into a man under incredible pressure. Some days his spirits are up, some days he's down, some days he's annoyed with the French sometimes, some days he's admiring them. And he never knows day-by-day whether they're going to be able to land and and proceed with their invasion, uh, if the weather gets better, or whether a British Navy will trap them and blow them all to bits.
2: The late 18th century was the period of what we now call self-writing or life-writing. So there were innumerable women's diaries that were never published or their letters to their female friends, because for women, that was a way to express yourself and create a sphere. But you also have many, many examples of men writing memoirs, autobiographies, diaries, and the human is beginning to be at the centre of their own existence. They're charting their own life. You'd know yourself. Daniel O'Connell decides to marry the woman he loves. She doesn't have a dowry and he couldn't give a hoot. He'd taken his decision. That's my path in life. It's also an age where emotionalism, sensibility, you see it in paintings. You have male writers writing about female emotion. It impregnates every level of life. But tone on top of that, also puts that into the passion of his mission that he wants to accomplish. We mustn't forget ambition and vanity comes out in the diary. He even teases himself. He says, oh, there's quite a bit of vanity in my diary today.
0: Tom, uh... Tone also had a great flair for the, the telling soundbite, the memorable soundbite. And he ends his account uh, saying that uh, this was the closest English escape since the Spanish Armada. And of course, that becomes the great quote that historians and writers use in their accounts, and it's how people remember it. But it, possi- it, it would have been close, perhaps, if, they, if they'd managed to land. But it could also quite as easily have backfired completely
3: and they could have been all blown to bits. It could have I belong to a minority who feel that even had the French got ashore at Bantry Bay, even had they captured Cork, which was quite possible that they could have done, even had they marched on Dublin and taken the city, and with the Crown forces in disarray and in retreat, I still think that Britain would have had to reinvade and reoccupy Ireland so that the United Irish Project would have come to nothing except it would have brought about a second invasion of Ireland. My reasoning is that Ireland was important to Britain in a way that, for example, the American colonies were not. The important colonies for Britain were the West Indian colonies. They assumed that the American experiment would collapse, so there really was no, not much need to go any further about it. So that Britain would have demanded, there would have been a demand that Britain reinvade Ireland and chase the French out. What would have happened, I think, is that at the ensuing peace treaty, say in 1802, the French would have abandoned Ireland and in return for certain West Indian islands, Martinique, Guadeloupe, Jamaica perhaps, in order, to, but Britain could not give up. And of course, you know, that, that is ignored. There's sort of a, what might have happened had the French landed. But I, I, can, I honestly cannot see any way in which it would have had a happy ending with a French repub- uh, with an Irish Republic set up um, and everything being peaceful and no, pr- no problem about that whatsoever and then following Bantry Bay, the British are forewarned,
0: and you have a whole series of of repressive measures to try and terrify the population into submission yeah. in one way helps provoke a, a reaction in 1798 and the 1798 rebellion then which breaks out in the summer of, of, of that year it's, it has much, I suppose, even less chance of success than if Bantry Bay had succeeded and Tone is following this from France and he sets off then in the final stages Yeah, he, he
3: learns of the May 23rd outbreak of the, of the rebellion in and around Dublin he learns of that some weeks later in other words, he wasn't actually au fait with what was going on in Ireland. As Sylvie points out, he he was out of touch with events in Ireland. He learns of the capture of United Irishmen the previous a few months earlier, the capture of Lord Edward Fitzgerald, the Shears brothers, and the whole roundup of the of the others in the very, in, in Oliver Bond's house and so on. He finds himself really stuck what to do um, and he decides that he must go back. And again, you can work out what he's doing because this is a gambler's throw does he think that his presence will ignite a second rising does he think that he, since he invested so much effort and time into getting a rebellion underway that he must be there at the end by the time he arrives the rebellion is over it's really over and uh, Amber's men have surrendered at Ballinamuk and they've been treated well but their auxiliaries, the Irish auxiliaries, are, are decimated. There really wasn't any hope. I don't quite know what would have happened had he got ashore and remained incognito at Buncrana. But he, 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 was, he was identified immediately, he stepped ashore. In fact, he identified himself when he got ashore. Um, and the result was he was carted off to Dublin, court-martialed, sentenced to death by hanging, which was where the tale unfolds of
0: his
3: and, and tell
0: us about that tale because he was there in his French military uniform. He wanted to be shot like a French soldier. Instead, that was denied to him because they'd saw him as an, an Irish rebel, an Irish yeah. traitor. And if you read Tone's accounts and uh, about it in the lead up and even the the account that his son William wrote uh, years later, there does seem to be enough evidence to suggest that Tone wouldn't, wanted to cheat the hangman, wouldn't have been satisfied with allowing uh, someone else to choose
3: the the fate for him? Yeah, I think there, there are a couple of puzzles. I think the one thing that can be ruled out unequivocally is that he was murdered. Um, what annoys me, which I shouldn't be annoyed about, but is that he was court-martialed. And I thought, I think still that this was a grave injustice because, Yes, there were military courts marshals ongoing, but the civil courts were open in November and they were open to someone like Tone to be tried and uh, found guilty or whatever. Found not guilty, unlikely, of course. So that the decision to court-martial him was, I think... Uh, really unlawful and probably illegal. And this was the basis for the volunteer rescue attempt made by other lawyers to get Tone out of, out of the clutches of the military authorities. The Castle view was that when Tone left um, Ireland in late 1795, um, having concluded an agreement with Dublin Castle that in return for some information, carefully neutral information, he would exile himself to the US, that the agreement was that if he were to return, he would be for the high jump. And that was brought forward as a reason why he, he could not be allowed uh, neither diplomatic immunity or the uniform of the French soldier. was all by the way. The agreement was, if you return, you will be executed. You will be liable for execution. Hence the trial and then the sentence by hanging. What happens after that? Again, I think he does uh, have a, have a hand in his own death, his wound, and uh, sepsis. I guess sets in, and that's so he dies an agonising death, um, really in a miserable conditions, um, in in, a, in an Irish jail. And I think, you know, Sylvie says we know how it all ends when we read his diaries, which are full of fun and frolicking and dr- drinking es- escapades. It's that ghastly ending which gives the diaries their poignancy Um, because while he's dropping literary allusions and making sorts of teasing remarks about himself, we know it's all going to end in squalid conditions, miserable conditions, with a horrible wound and in agony in, in Newgate.
0: If there was a a regular trial for Tone, he would have been found guilty. He was found at the scene of the crime in a French military uniform. But by evading uh, their own legal procedures, it does cast a a real shadow over
3: the whole thing. It does, yeah, it does. It doesn't look look good. Um, We have to remember that there still was a good deal of nervous hysteria about the rebellion of 1798. His death has, I think, does damage his reputation to some extent. Irish Catholic opinion is, I think, uneasy in the 19th century with the notion of suicide. Um, and thus, he's not the sort of hero that perhaps Robert Emmet was.
0: And this became a controversy, I think it was about 20 years ago when Gay Byrne presented Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? because one of the questions was how did Wolf Tone die?
2: Those reactions, Patrick, would have been 20th century Irish Catholic reactions and teaching social history and mindsets of the 18th century as I have no doubt Katrina does with her very lucky undergraduates. I think there's a hint in that that Tone decided the manner of his own death. I think particularly the executions in 1916, not casement. There was something honorable about them. The tone was cheated because they did want to make a spectacle Put his head up on a pike. That's what they wanted very desperately to make an example of him and not let him get away with it. The scoundrel, he evaded that. But the 14 in Kilmainham jail had a form to us comparatively of an honorable death.
0: Although perhaps not uh, not legal due, due no, legal no, process no, 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 in the way no, they, they no, arrived no, no, no. at it. OK, well, we are tonight debating the life, death and legacy of Theobald Wolftone. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll be talking about the crucial role played by his wife, later then his widow, Matilda Tone, and assess the legacy of Theobald Wolftone. Welcome back. We're talking history and tonight we are talking about Theobald Wolftone. I'm rejoined by my expert panel, Dr. Katrina Kennedy of the University of York, Professor Thomas Bartlett, Emeritus Professor at the University of of Aberdeen Dr Sylvie Kleinman of Trinity College Dublin and William Atkins co-chairman of the Tone 225 commemoration Katrina can I ask you about the crucial role played by Matilda Tone Tone's widow because without her we wouldn't have all of these writings published in the in the 1820s and those writings were so crucial to inspire Thomas Davis, the Young Irelanders, the later Fenians, Patrick Pearce and so on, that in a way she deserves huge recognition uh, for her important role in preserving the legacy and making sure that it was passed down to new generations.
4: Yes, absolutely. You know, the, the, uh, the publication of the journals and memoir in 1826 um, which are um, have been collated and edited by Matilda with her son, um, William, um, is absolutely essential to his legacy. And we've been hearing about, you know, just what a charismatic figure Tone um, emerges as from these uh, pages. So uh, Matilda Tone does a lot of work to um, reunite the kind of scattered uh, journals. So she goes to the U.S to um, bring together the, the documents that she had with those that um, had been preserved by other United Irishmen and brought to the States. So she unites those um, and then, yes, goes on to, to publish them. And in many respects, we've been talking a bit about the, the, the kind of 18th century ideas of republicanism. And in preserving Tone's memory, um, Matilda Tone is really fulfilling this role of the Republican widow. So this is very much looking back to classical Greece and Rome, um, this idea that for these uh, virtuous Greek and Roman women, the highest uh, honor, you know, that they they would uh, look to the death of their husbands or sons in the service of a public not as something to be regretted, but something that they would actively applaud and that they would um, uh, then uh, do everything in their power to um, guard their husband's memory, to promote that memory, rather than to lament their loss. Um, and you can see in what Matilda's doing in this period in the early 19th century, again thinking about thinking forward to the uh, to 1916 um, and the revolutionary decade in the twentieth century, that she's setting a template that the widows of 1916, you know, people like Kathleen Clark or Lady Connolly and so on, that they go on to pursue um, a, a similar role. That the, 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 the you know the loss of their husbands, um, it, they it in some ways gives them an authority to emerge as public figures to emerge the Christians of their memory and often to take on a slightly more um, political role in that sense. So Matilda Tone herself, she's in, in, in Paris when she hears the news of Tone's death. Um, and uh, then in 1816, will cross um, um, the Atlantic to the United States, where she spends the rest of her life. But she's in very close contact with uh, United Irish exiles there. And she also becomes um, a, a, a kind of object of pilgrimage for various Irish nationalists. Thomas Davis, uh, the young Irelander, um, uh, begins a correspondence with her uh, in the late 1830s, early 1840s. Um, and together, you know, at, at Matilda Tone's behest, he um, uh, erects the gravestone at Bowdenstown um, to commemorate Um, uh, Wolf Tone and of course Bowdenstone will then go on um, to become this major site of pilgrimage for Irish nationalists so uh, throughout the the 50 years that after her husband's death Matilda Tone is engaged uh, consistently with trying to promote and guard his memory
0: and Katrina, you could almost tell the history of modern Ireland through those Bowdenstown speeches. You have a Sinn Féin one and a Fianna Fáil one every year where they they look at some aspect, whether of Irish or international events and uh, link it in with tone. And it's, it's a reflection about the world of today and how you can adapt tone for whatever argument is being made.
4: Mm. Yes, and I think that speaks in some ways to the... Um, the different tones that, um, you know, can be drawn on, you know, whether you see him as as primarily a Republican separatist, whether its legacy was primarily an an endorsement of armed revolution in the service of the Republic, or was it a vision of a non-sectarian republic? You could also say that. Or um, he's also... um, being championed as a social radical. You know, one of his famous lines is, um, in praise of the men of no property. So, um, the kind of labourers, the ordinary working people. So, you could see him uh, being embraced um, in that light by um, a more socialist uh, tradition. But, I know Sylvie has, you know, suggested that perhaps Bowdenstown today um, uh, favors certain in the way that it's the the um the site is configured might favour certain interpretations of Tone over others.
0: Bill, I might leave the final word to you and a question about the legacy and the lasting legacy of Tone because in in Ireland today there are discussions about a possible unification and what that might mean but also about what it means to be an Irish Republic and uh, it's something that Tone wrestled with in the 1790s and uh, perhaps hasn't been really reflected on very much since then so I think there probably is much in the writings and the ideas of Tone tone that would help, perhaps not speak to us, but could perhaps help influence us or guide us as we consider some of these things
1: today? Indeed, Patrick. I would point most um, kind of readily at the fact that cross-generationally, Tone and Pierce maybe are two bookends, and that we look at them as people who knew they were going to fail, but they, they proceeded on their course knowing that if they're Cause was honorable that it would be taken up by the next generation, and so this kind of messaging through the ages. Now the band, the Wolf Tone, is going to retire. We're all going to have to take over the legacy management role, some in some way, uh, to make sure that the clarion call of his Republican separatist message isn't misinterpreted in a way that creates political division in a modern day context. Because certainly his message is about unification of Irish men, women, people, children, all under the banner of Irishmen. And so it's hard to dispute. His words were really clear. And I think if we just stick to that, and we're also referring to a gentleman whose whose choice of words are reflective of some of the seminal human and civil rights activists that we're all familiar with, and it might very well be that his ability to pull on pain and Voltaire and on taking selected things from his British enemies is to put together a cogent ideology that can be acted on and to do it in a way that it can be communicated in a narrative like nobody else could. Tones, words meant something. At the end of the day, his legacy will define itself the words, his actions, and his person.
0: Well, I think there's lots for us to think about with that lovely reflection there Bill my thanks to my wonderful panel of experts for bringing the life, legacy and world of Tone uh, to us tonight Dr. Katrina Kennedy of the University of York Professor Thomas Barclay of the University of Aberdeen Dr. Sylvie Kleinman of Trinity College Dublin and William Atkins, Bill Atkins the co-chairman of the Tone 225 commemoration and a relative of Theobald Wolftone well that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History my thanks to to my producer Marisa Sullivan and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been talking history. Good night.